BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The 2020 and 2021 hurricane seasons were in the top three most active on record. But for now, the hurricane record extends only as far back as historical stories or the modern weather data. Could we actually be in a historical low in tropical cyclone activity? Scientists like Tyler Winkler have discovered a new way of uncovering the past using sediment cores from blue holes. Tyler's work was featured on an episode of the Nat Geo documentary, Years of Living Dangerously, and he joins us today on Weather Geeks. Tyler, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So you're a geologist, a biologist, an oceanographer. Are you also a weather geek? I am. I am. A little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. How how'd you become this multidisciplinary geek? <laughs> so I uh, started out and I, I was in high school trying to figure out what I wanted to go and do with my life and uh, had a really great biology class. And I started scuba diving around the same time, became a dive master. And I thought, well, how can I can combine these two loves? So I studied marine biology at Texas A&M University at Galveston and uh, really loved it. Uh, my first year, I actually took a cavern diving course and started diving in uh, these karst caves in the Florida region. And uh, even though I was a biologist, I started becoming very interested in the rocks and the sediment around me in these subterranean environments that I was diving into. And uh, so I started doing some research down in Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula, diving in cenotes and still just was very interested in how these systems were functioning and what these potential sediment records were telling us about the past environment. And uh, one thing led to another. And even as a biologist studying nutrient methane based uh, ecosystems in these caves, uh, I started working with a, another geologist, started taking sediment cores in these and looking at paleo environmental change. So this is things like uh, how these environments are responding to sea level, uh, how past storms, uh, for instance, are impacting these environments. And uh, yeah, and also how uh, paleo rainfall change is being recorded in these groundwater uh, ecosystems. Uh, and so that kind of led to that. And then I decided to do my PhD in it at Texas A&M University and College Station in Oceanography. So uh, Focusing again primarily on looking at these blue hole sediment records, which are very, very high resolution, unique environments uh, that are capable of telling us things about the past environment at a kind of scale and resolution like we haven't seen in almost any other paleo environmental record. And uh, because the Bahamas is so impacted by hurricanes, uh, these particular sediment records that are so high resolution offered a great opportunity for understanding past hurricane changes uh, in the sedimentary environment. And that's kind of how I got to where I am today, where I'm working at Woodsell Oceanographic Institution as a postdoctoral scholar. Uh, continuing to study these blue hole sediment records and looking at hurricane changes and past hydroclimate variability. But I'm now kind of extending my research to start looking at how these storms and coastal flooding are changing at higher latitudes, such as in Atlantic Canada, like Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, looking at how these storms are evolving at higher latitudes uh, from based on the frequency that we know that we've kind of documented so well in the Bahamas, but how is this actually changing at higher latitudes? And that's kind of what I'm looking at today. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really nice introduction. Let me give you a little bit of uh, Tyler's background, and he did mention some of this. He's a postdoctoral scholar at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, one of the top institutions in the world for oceanographic research. Uh, did his PhD in geological oceanography at Texas A&M University, uh, and he also heard about his time at Texas A&M Galveston as well, where he has a bachelor's degree in marine biology and biological oceanography. So he's certainly someone as we try to have on Weather Geeks who knows the stuff. And so we like to dig deep. We're going to geek out. We're going to, I have a feeling, I, it's, it's, I have the sneaky feeling we're going to geek out on some really interesting topics all over the place today because I know um, Jen Carfagno, who's uh, one of our Weather Geeks team meteorologists and producers, has um, laid out some really nice uh, preparatory notes for me. But I also have some places I want to go beyond the notes as well. First of all, before I really get into the discussion, Geek out for the listeners, because we have a wide variety of listeners on Weather Geeks about just what paleo work is, paleo environmental work or paleo, because I think some people may be familiar with things like ice cores and coral and sediment and so forth, but they don't sort of make the connections to how it's really done and how accurate it is. So just just give us a little 101 on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as our environment's changing, there's lots of different ways that that change is being expressed in different parts of our natural environment. So for instance, in caves, you form speleothems like stalactites and stalagmites. And each year you're kind of depositing it with each water droplet that passes along that speleothem, you're forming and recording the characteristics of the chemistry of that water as it's dripping through. And that's, and that can actually be looked at on a yearly basis back through time, what that chemistry was. And that relates to uh, atmospheric, composition, uh, groundwater, and uh, set and soil changes. All of that chemistry is recorded just in that one droplet. And it's the same thing looking at, for instance, ice cores, where you're actually trapping air bubbles, uh, which are a snapshot into the Earth's atmosphere at that one point in time. And we can actually look at what the atmospheric was composition was at that time in Earth's history. Sediments the exact same way, but it actually tells us a lot of very different things because it's actually uh, telling us things about uh, the surrounding coastal environment. So within the sediment, we're actually preserving uh, things called microfossils. So they're the shells of small microscale uh, invertebrates. And the chemistry of those shells can actually tell us a lot about the water chemistry and the atmospheric chemistry at the time, uh, which is important for understanding things like sea surface temperature and things like uh, past rainfall variability and water salinity. Uh, but you're also recording things about like, for instance, the terrestrial organic matter that's being washed into these uh, sedimentary depositional basins that's also being recorded in that. What were the plants like at the time? How are the plants, which are leaves, which are actually recording very specific th- uh, details about past rainfall chemistry, which is then also related to atmospheric chemistry. We can actually look at the chemical composition of those leaves throughout these time. Uh, for instance, and then with hurricanes, what we're actually looking at is we're looking at changes in the size primarily of sediment particles. So most of these uh, sedimentary basins like these blue holes in the Bahamas, they're actually very quiescent, calm environments during normal conditions. And you're actually depositing a very fine grained, small mud particles. But during a hurricane, you can imagine whenever you have all these currents and uh, storm surge washing through, you're picking up much larger sand size, gravel size, and boulder size particles potentially, and depositing it into that blue hole. And that creates a nice layer. And it's almost like a barcode throughout time. That's how I like to describe them as like Earth's barcode. And you can actually see these distinct changes and layers throughout Earth's history. And it provides these snapshots into how the environment is changing at a specific time and what different events 
are happening in that specific time in Earth's history that we just can't get from any other mechanism. So uh, there's a lot of work now actually using things like models to actually look at and predict cha changes in Earth's past environment. But without these paleo records, we really can't be confident at what they're saying, especially on a regional or local scale. Uh, we can really only get that through these very, very unique uh, paleo records. And that's why they're so fascinating to me. Now, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and it's really a key topic for this episode. So I think some listeners, at least, may be familiar with blue holes from the perspective of diving. You've got the great blue hole off the coast of Belize, for example. But from the perspective of your research, define what a blue hole is for everyone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So a blue hole is essentially just a sinkhole that has been flooded as sea level has risen over the last 20,000 years. Um, so a sinkhole forms whenever you have uh, dissolution. So it forms in carbonate environments. It's a specific type of rock, primarily limestone. So uh, as limestone dissolves, as you have water percolating down through it from rainfall, you start to form a little cave uh, at the bottom uh, in, in the Earth's uh, surface. And so eventually, as this limestone keeps dissolving over time, it will the void will grow so large that the ceiling can no longer sustain its own weight and it will actually collapse. And based just on conservation of energy, this collapse will result in a perfect circle shape in many instances, especially. And so we see lots of these features across uh, Florida and all across the Bahamas. Uh, so for instance, in another side project that I have that I'm working on, I've actually using satellite imagery documented nearly a thousand blue holes just across the island chains of the Bahamas. So they are abundant, but they can range anywhere and, you know, can be as shallow as just a meter deep all the way up to there's some well over 300 meters deep in the Bahamas. So they're uh, just these perfect kind of void spaces that are in the Earth's surface. Now, some blue holes are actually connected by other cave systems uh, in the subsurface. Uh, so you can have connectivity between individual blue holes, but some blue holes tend to exist more in isolation. And these are the ones that we're interested in because if they're in isolation, if you have that water, if you have a lot of connectivity between the blue holes, you have lots of water flow in between uh, that can result in a lot of disturbing of those sediments. But whenever they're in isolation, it kind of just creates this deep uh, chamber that's essentially a perfect natural sediment trap. So you can't have surface waves or currents that are actually disturbing those sediments. So once they're being deposited, that sediment is uh, forming a nice distinct layer. Uh, because there's so little flow at the bottom of most of these blue holes, you're also not having a lot of circulation of the water columns. So that's actually going to create an anoxic environment, meaning an environment that is void of oxygen. So you can't have little bugs or anything living down there that could actually be stirring up that sediment. So invertebrates and fish are great at stirring up sediment in a lot of ocean environments, but in these blue holes where we have that low to no oxygen, they can't exist down there. So we're preserving, have almost perfect sediment preservation potential in them. So they are perfect, perfect, perfect sites for these paleoenvironmental reconstructions. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Tyler Winkler from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And we're talking about blue holes because apparently they tell us some history about things like hurricanes. And that's where I want to go next. I mean, I know this, perhaps this work preceded you, but you've kind of taken it and run with it, or perhaps you've pioneered it. I want to learn your story more. But how did we get to a place that we know that these blue holes can tell us things about hurricanes? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's been a lot of work done over the last several decades looking at how hurricanes can be recorded in these deeper coastal catchments. So it kind of started out up in New England looking at features called kettle ponds, which are essentially ponds or lakes that are left behind once a large piece of a glacier melts away and it leaves a perfect kind of circular depression. And as storms kind of overwash and create storm surge over a barrier, they're depositing coarse sediments from that beach into these kettle ponds. And then that's leaving a nice sandy layer in between the finer organic muds that are uh, on either side of being deposited in normal background conditions. So based kind of on that principle started, people started looking at uh, including my uh, postdoctoral mentor, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Donnelly at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, started looking at sinkholes in Florida using the similar principle. So the Florida coast is unique in that it has a lot of these kind of sinkholes on the surface that are partially flooded. And as sand, as storm surge overwashes barriers, it's depositing sand layers into those sinkholes. So uh, come along, my PhD uh, advisor, Dr. Pete Van Hangstam, uh, during his postdoc, also at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, uh, started exploring these blue holes down in the Bahamas and noticing, you know, he took some on scuba, he went down and took some initial preliminary cores uh, with a diver, uh, Brian K. Cook, who works down there, and started to see that there were also coarse layers in these blue holes that kind of juxtaposed or kind of contrasted the fine grain mud that's being deposited during normal background conditions at these sites. So that kind of triggered our thought process that, okay, maybe these sites are going to be good at recording hurricanes. But what we didn't anticipate kind of until I started my research is just how high the sedimentation rate was at these sites. And that's what's very unique about these blue holes as compared to a lot of other paleo reconstructions is that this high sedimentation rate, which is sometimes anywhere from one to three centimeters per year of sediment being deposited into these blue holes. What that does is that offers us annual snapshots of what the sedimentary environment is looking like. So we can actually in these sites, each with year to year, we can get a picture of was there a hurricane this year versus no hurricanes this year. Whereas others past hurricane reconstruction work where we were being good to see, you know, decadal to centennial scale windows of, okay, there was probably a hurricane this century. Whereas with the Bahamas, oh man, we can actually see now there was a hurricane this year at this time in Earth's past. And so really being able to see that, that's how we're now able to start studying these uh, annual to decadal to more broadal multi-decadal scale trends in hurricane frequency over time. And that's kind of really where my research has kind of led and kind of continued to build on this field of paleotempestology. So I I know we're in an era of climate change and the, the, mm-hmm. the scientific literature clearly establishes that there has been some misreporting, in my opinion, on sort of climate change hurricane activity. You often hear people say, oh, we're going to have more hurricanes and they're going to be stronger, right? Well, the literature actually suggests that 
we may not have more, may actually have less hurricanes, but on average, when they happen, they will be more intense. That's that's what at least the latest literature that I read is. And if you want a really good source on that, by the way, the uh, NOAA's GFDL, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, has an outstanding climate change and hurricane website. So with that context, uh, your work has shown that hurricane activity has decreased in the Bahamas since 1860. Um, give us a sense of that finding, what it means for hurricane activity before that and how active it was. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's certainly one of the things that I think is kind of hard to understand about some of my research is that we are showing this decline in overall hurricane frequency relative to the last 2000 years over the last 160 years or so. Um, but there's a couple kind of key points to that. It's very hurricane frequency is very, very regional. Um, so there's a lot of spatial variability and how hurricanes are changing over the last uh, 2000 years in the North Atlantic. Um, so whereas we're seeing a decrease in hurricanes overall in the Bahamas over this time period, we're seeing an increase in other areas such as the Northeastern United States and the East Coast, as well as parts of the Gulf Coast. It's very, very, very variable. Uh, so that's one thing that I have to kind of clarify, but also what we are clearly seeing based on all of our knowledge of the physics of hurricanes and all climate models and kind of all research that we have to this day, what we are confident in is that hurricanes under a warming, anthropogenic climbing, climate warming scenario are expected to become more intense. They're expected to have track slower, so they are able to create larger surge and do more damage in a specific area over time. They're expected to have more rainfall because of the abundant moisture that's available as our oceans and atmospheres are warming. So these are the things that we know, but frequency is really governed by a lot of different things that aren't necessarily directly connected to anthropogenic climate. Um, and so that's some of the stuff that we can kind of get into talking about with some of our specific examples of this. Um, but what I want to clarify is that the fact that we're actually seeing less hurricanes overall, particularly in the Bahamas over the last 160 years, is actually somewhat alarming, in my opinion, is because we know, based on my research, that there were times in the past that within kind of all of these kind of somewhat natural variations in the Earth's climate system, you could produce almost twice as many hurricanes in a given location as you can, uh, as what we're seeing today. So with the knowledge that hurricanes are going to intensify, that they're going to move slower, that they're going to have moisture, more moisture availability, if we start to see, we have been, and we know that we have the potential for twice as many hurricanes per century in any given location based on our past knowledge, any increase in hurricane activity in Earth's future based on kind of some of this natural variability that we know is within these systems uh, could have very, very devastating impacts knowing that generally storms are going to be more intense and be more destructive. So yeah, I think you said some key things here because I, you know, when I saw this, this the the run up to this show, I said, oh boy, this is going to be some fodder for some skeptics <laughs> out there in climate. Um, but I think you said some really outstanding things because you're a scientist, so you understand the nuances and caveats, and just don't make uh, big sweeping statements like some might tend to do when they hear this uh, podcast and want to sort of misuse the information. I mean, you talked about the regional variability in activity. And you also talked about this idea that, you know, you, if the natural system variability itself is still underproducing in the Bahamas, when you couple that with a potential amplification due to the greenhouse gases and, and so forth uh, in terms of intensity, you're sitting on a powder keg. That's kind of what I interpreted you were mm -hmm. saying. However, what, what, how would you respond, though, to someone 
you know, let's say in the next 30 to 50 years, we start to see an uptick in the uh, hurricane intensity activity, maybe not so much frequency or maybe in frequency too. How do you respond? How, how do you clarify or clean up the narrative? Because you'll have some things. See here, so hurricanes are increasing in the Bahamas, it's climate change. And then maybe from your work, you're saying, no, it's just sort of cycling back to this natural uptick that we kind of were expecting. So how do you reconcile those two things if, if we start to see that over the next 50 to 100 years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the way that I kind of think about it is how do we produce as much knowledge as we can to prepare for future scenarios? And so we kind of look at three factors. There's the intensity factor. That's pretty well constrained. There's not a lot telling us that there's going to be any decrease in intensity as the earth continues to warm. So let's kind of consider that to be something of a constant. Frequency was, is, and will continue to be the biggest kind of uncertainty because yes, climate certainly has an impact on the frequency of hurricanes, but there is a lot of natural kind of variability in frequency. So, but let's say knowing that we're at a low, chances are it's probably not going to continue to get much lower. Uh, it's We're kind of at the low that we've seen over the last 2000 years. So we, that let's say that we're kind of at that now, that's kind of the best case scenario is current frequency. But the other factor that we have to think about when we're looking at risk presented by hurricanes over the next century is sea level rise. And that is another kind of constant. Really throughout most places in the North Atlantic, we're expecting to see up to a meter of sea level rise over the next century. So whenever we're looking at places like the Bahamas, the Bahamas are expected to lose under a meter sea level rise scenario, the Bahamas will lose 12% of their total land area. So even a weak storm that happens very infrequently could produce similar levels of flooding and surge as what we're uh, Hurricane Dorian, which was a Category 5 hurricane pre uh, presented back in uh, 2019. So these three things that, together. That stalled over the Bahamas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was actually a couple of my field sites were on Abaco and Grand Bahama, which were the most impacted by Dorian in 2019. And we saw almost complete inundation of parts of the island. And a lot of these areas of these islands that were inundated during Dorian would already be flooded under a one meter sea level rise scenario. So even in the best case, let's say we continue to have lower storm frequency that kind of stays at this uh, his historic low. Even a weaker storm, let's say it doesn't intensify as much as we expect it to intensify storms overall. Even weak storms presented with the sea level rise scenario could produce storing levels of flooding in Earth's future. But we don't expect it to stay as infrequent as it is now. And we don't, and we we do expect storms to continue to intensify. So all three of these things together, that does present problems for these regions and for regions elsewhere around the world. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Tyler Winkler about blue holes, climate, hurricanes, and how they are all connected. Now, one thing that me as a climate scientist and you as a climate scientist and a paleo expert and oceanographer and a biologist in all of your hats 
you're aware of the alphabet suit within the climate system of teleconnection, the El Ninos and La Ninas and the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation and so forth. Jen, Jen Carfagno actually in her notes raises an interesting question about whether this information you're gaining from blue holes uh, can say anything about teleconnections and coupling and hurricane activity. Certainly. It's uh I, I don't want to like overconfidently state it. They're still these are very complex and they're complex to even understand within climate models that are specifically designed to tease at these specific questions. But the level of resolution that we have from these blue hole records do, it really do kind of present one of the first scenarios where we can actually begin to start to look at these teleconnections, which are generally functioning on decadal scale changes. Yeah, that's where we're seeing a lot of these kind of uh changes happening. With past records that were lower resolution, we haven't quite been able to start looking at these smaller decadal scale changes that may be related to some of these teleconnections. But with our blue hole records, we're starting to be able to get at that question. I think that we have to develop a lot more of these records from throughout the North Atlantic uh, before we can start to really confidently begin to get into kind of understanding those teleconnections and how they're presenting in the paleo sense. Because what right now, what we're really at this stage is we're learning how much we didn't know. And that's kind of the beautiful thing about a lot of science is as, as we continue to learn how much we don't know. And what we really didn't understand is how well this kind of spatial heterogeneity and hurricane frequency that we see in the modern over the last 170 years in our satellite and uh, instrumental records, how much that's persisting throughout time. Uh, the northern Bahamas over the last 2000 years really does seem to be a kind of consistent hotspot for hurricane activity relative to the rest of the Bahamas. Uh, same with, for instance, the Outer Banks of the Carolinas and portions of the Gulf of Mexico, particularly around the Louisiana area. These seem to be hot spots, but even just within the Bahamas alone, uh, we're seeing over the instrumental period, 16 or around 16 greater than or equal to category two hurricanes uh, since about 1850 when the instrumental records started up in, near Abaco and Grand Bahama. Just 300 kilometers to the south in Andros, you're seeing just three to four greater than or equal to category two hurricanes for, uh, during that same time period in Andros. So uh, really what we've learned is that we have to actually continue to develop these high resolution records from throughout the Atlantic so we can start to really understand these regional scale patterns. And then from there, I think that we can more confidently start to get into, okay, teasing out what teleconnections and what of the alphabet suit may be having an impact in this location more so versus this location. So these are certainly things that we're starting to look at. Uh, like, for instance, like we're very interested in how uh, the North Atlantic subtropical high, uh, which is a high pressure cell that exists and it migrates the western boundary uh, throughout seasonal and longer timescales. Uh, one hypothesis that we're kind of exploring right now is that whenever you have a uh, kind of a retracted Nash or a weaker North Atlantic subtropical high, uh, that Western Ridge will kind of move e eastward away from the East Coast. And that will allow hurricanes to actually kind of recurve and steer more up towards the East Coast. So the hurricanes that are forming in the main development region of the Atlantic off the coast of Africa, as they kind of move on a straight path, if you have a kind of weaker retract the North Atlantic subtropical high. There's a lot of hypotheses out there that, yeah, that retracted boundary will allow those storms to recurve and impact the East Coast. Whereas if you have a more intense or expanded Nash, North Atlantic subtropical high, those storms may proceed on a more straightforward path 
westward into the Southern Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico. So that is one hypothesis that we're starting to explore. So my colleagues and I are also developing these high resolution near annually resolved records in parts of the Yucatan Peninsula, as well as continuing to do this in Florida and parts of the Southern Caribbean. So working to try to understand that potential hypothesis, that's just one example of the way that we are trying to uh, explore these kind of specific uh, teleconnections and impacts of these climate features in the Atlantic. You know, talking with this is by the way, I, I don't know about you, but this is fascinating. I, I know our listeners are we they're treated to some amazing topics in these podcast episodes, but I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by this uh, topic that uh, Tyler is sharing with us here today on Weather Geeks. You mentioned this, you alluded to it, or, but you mentioned that Florida, for example, and the Bahamas are places where you find these blue holes in, in good numbers. Uh, are they prevalent generally anywhere around the world? And is there other blue hole type research of this nature going on in other places around the globe? Yeah, so they are prevalent, I would say, anywhere where you have a carbonate geological environment. So lots of limestone, particularly on the coast. Um, there's a lot of kind of factors that go into forming these blue hole features. It's related to uh, mixing dissolution of saline groundwater from the ocean and meteoric groundwater that's coming from rainfall. So you tend to form these in coastal carbonate environments. So uh, they're very prevalent in parts of the Pacific as well. Uh, so there are my colleagues, uh, Dr. Jeff Donnelly at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He actually, and uh, another colleague, uh, Dr. Dobbin Wallace at the University of Southern Mississippi actually just got funded to do a big research study looking at blue hole light features in the Pacific uh, to, to do similar storm reconstructions there uh, and seeing how things like El Nino Southern Oscillation and very uh, Pacific-oriented uh, climate features are impacting uh, tropical cyclone behavior and frequency in that region of the world. Uh, so certainly that's happening there. You also do see similar blue hole features. They're just regionally called cenotes in the Yucatan Peninsula area of Mexico. Uh, that's a lot of large carbonate geological features there. And so we actually are currently involved in research, uh, reconstructing hurricane activity from recorded in blue holes in this region as well. And there's other research groups around the world looking at, for instance, as you mentioned earlier, Great Blue Hole Belize, also known as Lighthouse Blue Hole in Belize. There's a lot of hurricane reconstruction work that's been done in that particular blue hole. So, and what we're really seeing with all of these kind of blue hole records is similar high resolution, high sedimentation rates and great preservation potential. So kind of looking at these particular sites are giving us kind of unprecedented insight into tropical and subtropical climatic variability and hurricane activity over time. So certainly there is a kind of broader push to expand this work uh, throughout the world. Scuba diving is a hobby for some, but it seems integral to what you do. Uh, is that the case? And do you find that you're more comfortable diving in terms of your research or looking at satellite data or in situ observations? Uh, tell us about the role of diving in your in your work. Certainly, yeah. So uh, diving is really, really integral, especially to the reconnaissance stage of this research. So not every blue hole is going to have, you know, this amazing climate record in it. So, but by going in on scuba, we're actually able to kind of see the environment. We're able to go in and take uh, water quality measurements, looking at things like salinity and oxygen and pH and trying to decide which sites have the potential for great sediment preservation. So I use it a lot in terms of that kind of exploration, figuring out which sites are better to go back and take longer sediment cores from. And that's actually how this research started out, was uh, people going in to these blue holes, diving on scuba, diving 
and taking short two meter long push cores and taking out and looking at that. Uh, but what we've now come along and we kind of developed great systems for taking sediment cores that are up to 18 meters or around 60 feet long in very remote environments using an inflatable raft platform and a technique called submersible viber coring. So that's essentially where we go out into the field. We pack all of this 3,000 pounds of equipment into remote areas in the Bahamas. And then we will actually set up a raft and take these long 60 foot long or 18 meter long sediment cores using this technology. So I'd say that, yeah, scuba is kind of integral to actually getting an idea of what we're looking at and where we should go. And then we kind of uh, take it from there in terms of our other techniques. Um, and one of those, I'm a, I'm a satellite guy at heart. I spent a good portion of my career at NASA. And so you mentioned earlier satellite, using satellite information mm -hmm. as well. And so I'm, I assume you're using the visible portions of the electromagnetic mm -hmm. spectrum as opposed to any near IR and whatnot. But I, I know that there are some ways of doing some, uh, you know, infrared related work in the ocean as well but this is primarily a visible based technique for the mm -hmm. satellite data yep yep so what, what particularly landsat? Uh, yeah landsat imagery primarily through so whenever we're trying to figure out where should we even begin to look at these we'll sit down on google earth and we will just look through and we we'll just go through and start dropping pins at various features that are very obvious blue holes and uh so then we'll kind of create a research plan from there like okay let's go and scuba dive in this one let's measure water quality in this one and let's do geophysical surveys where we're actually taking uh, a depth sounder and actually using sound to actually image the uh, sediment uh, down into the subsurface and so we'll go and we'll kind of combine all of these things and if we find out that a cave or a blue hole is generally a stratified water column, meaning that it's not getting mixed up by lots of flow in the subsurface, and it's anoxic. Um, if it has lots of sediment stored up in the blue hole based on the geophysical surveys, and if we can identify kind of good source to sink sediment dynamics on scuba, then that will be a target that we select for coring. But, but a lot of that work that I do in initially just finding the sites that we want to core is just through looking at visible Landsat imagery, and that helps us understand not only about where these features are, but gives us kind of a picture of the broader surrounding environment. So where could sediment be coming from? How is water likely moving under a storm scenario in this environment? Are there things like, particularly up in like Newfoundland where I'm doing some of my work now, is there potentially runoff streams or rivers that could be complicating these records? Uh, so really that's kind of where satellite's a very useful tool for me is uh, thinking about it from that perspective. And also thinking about, as storms are passing, how, what kind of storm tracks are, how are they going to create flooding at that specific site? Because depending on the track of the storm and the direction it's moving, you may not actually be creating a lot of surge at a specific site. In fact, in some areas of the Bahamas, some storms actually will push water away from the shoreline and draw it offshore. So all of these things kind of are where satellites are useful for helping us to contextualize the environment that we're looking at so that we can better interpret our records in the past. Well, I know one thing, this podcast episode has just added an additional topic to a one hour seminar that I teach at the University of Georgia on Earth observation from space. I think this year and this fall, we're going to explore blue holes too. So thank you for pointing me in this direction because it's something I wasn't familiar with from the standpoint of using satellite data. Now, as we draw to a close here, tell us about your work with years of living dangerously. How did you get involved and how did that help expose your research? 
Absolutely. So yeah, it was, uh, it kind of worked out. I was a very early on first year PhD student, whenever we found out this was all going to be happening. Uh, we weren't quite sure exactly how we were going to get to all of these blue holes scattered throughout the Bahamas. But um, so it worked out that uh, we kind of my current postdoctoral advisor and PhD mentor, uh, they put out a proposal to Ray Dalio and his foundation and said, hey, any way that we could use your ship, the MV Alusha, to go and get to some of these blue holes? And they said, absolutely, but we want to take it a step further. Let's get you in touch with Nat Geo to actually create a documentary over the work that you're doing because we feel it, it it's relevant for uh, kind of sharing how we're studying these past hurricane activities. So uh, yeah, one thing led to another and uh, Nat Geo got involved. And then uh, so we had this great documentary crew come out. Uh, we had our celebrity host, Ian Summerholder, come out and we kind of taught him about not only our climate change and hurricane activity, but also about our steps for doing our field work, how we get these records, how we look at it, how we pick our sites. And uh, Ian Summerholder and my advisor, Jeff Donnelly, actually got to go down in a sub and look at one of these larger blue holes and take lots of beautiful imagery around it. So it was just a really amazing experience. And uh, in this site and on this one month long cruise that we did as a part of this kind of documentary, we were able to get more done in terms of collecting blue holes and sampling these sites than we could ever have hoped to in a 20 year period, but in a one month period. So it really kind of worked out great. And that provided all of kind of the samples I needed for my PhD research. And it's still producing great science to this day. So that was an amazing experience. And then to be able to kind of start to get out to the public and start to share like, this is what we're doing and kind of humanize the science and let us know like, we're just here looking at this. This is why we're looking at it. We're really interested in risk. We're really interested in how risk is changing in response to climate. And of course, uh, coastal flooding and hurricanes are a big part of that risk. So yeah, it was really great getting that kind of exposure early on. And I think that it's kind of created a passion for continuing to share uh, my science through non-traditional scientific avenues. So um, it was a really, really awesome experience. Yeah, I appreciate young scholars and scientists like you embracing that we need to get our science out of the IV tower it's, it's very important through things like that and weather geeks and so forth where can people find you on social media or the internet or information about your projects yeah so i have an instagram <laughs> uh let me let me pull up my my handles here um yeah no we, yeah instagram i would imagine would be a great medium for you given that uh you know what a lot of what you do is very visual so I can imagine that being a really good format. So yeah, we definitely love to have your Instagram site here. He's he's looking up and up right now. But while 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 he's looking that up, uh, there's a really interesting Smithsonian Magazine article as well. If you want more information about uh, the blue hole activity and the research that we've talked about with Tyler today, uh, go ahead and Google and check that out because there's a really good good background information there. Did you find it? Uh, still working on it. I'm gonna see if it's actually. I, I think I have them all listed on my Hui profile. <laughs> That, that well, I mean, if 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 we can't find it, go to Instagram. I bet if you Google uh, "blue holes" and Tyler's name, Tyler Winkler, I suspect that you will find it. Are are you on Twitter or any other places as well? I, I am on Twitter as well. Um, let me see. Yeah, so he. Yeah, I'm he, really terrible at remembering my. Uh, that's, my oh, and that's okay. But what we'll try to do is, uh, as this airs, we'll make sure on our social media platform on Weather Geek. And by the way, if you are listening to the Weather Geeks podcast, be sure you're following the, the Weather Geeks uh, Twitter handle and the Facebook page as well, uh, because we actually do put a lot of information on our guests and on our shows on those social media platforms. So, um, now, 
you find it? Yep. So my my Twitter handle is at paleo underscore Winkler. Uh, and it's just if you search Tyler, Dr. Tyler S. Winkler on on Twitter, that is my Twitter. Very and good. then let's see my Instagram. That Instagram is proving to be elusive today. It is. Uh, let's see. And by the way, shout out to all of the colleagues there at uh, Woods Hole. I, I know a lot of really important and uh, amazing scientists work there in that environment. So shout out to everyone involved in pushing forward oceanographic and climate related research at Woods Hole, one of the premier institutions in the world. All right. I think I've got it. Just one second. It's um, okay. So my uh, Instagram handle is actually still linked to some of my PhD work, but it's Aggie underscore oceanographer. As okay. in, in. So yeah, so those are kind of my two social media um, especially whenever I go out into the field, I like to post kind of there to kind of share what we're doing and uh, kind of keep updates as it's coming along as we're putting out new scientific products uh, and just kind of sharing yeah, also not only what we're learning, but also the fun side of the science that we get to do because we get to work in really amazing places with really amazing people. So that's always fun to share. Yeah. And and, and again, I, that's why I did sort of linger and want, want to get that Instagram site out there because I can imagine these would be some visually stunning images that you're producing. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Normally, it'd be our geek of the week where we'd feature a scientist, superstar, geologist, or a weather weenie, but we need a new batch of weather um, geeks, uh, geeks of the week nominees. So be sure to go to our social media pages and particularly our Twitter site, and there's a, a form that you can fill out to nominate yourself or, or someone else for the Geek of the Week. But Tyler, once again, on behalf of all of us at the Weather Channel and the Weather Geeks team, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you guys do there. So thank you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. <laughs>